the humble beginnings of the farm shop hut nearly 50 years ago, Darts Farm has organically evolved into the unique lifestyle shopping destination it is today, with a working farm at its heart. Second generation Michael is joined by his son George, who returned home to the family business just before the pandemic and is already beginning to make his mark on the famed Darts Farm. Let's start from the beginning, right back when the acclaimed darts farm we know today was pick fresh and long before Michael was involved in the business. So if we can start, please, Michael and George, by uh, introducing yourselves and telling us a bit about how you each came to join the family business. Okay, well, I'm Michael, or George might say dad. I am um, one of three brothers. I've got two brothers, Jim and Paul, and actually we've got a, a gorgeous sister called Eve. And our dad and his brother, actually, uh, Uncle Colin, yes, as he was known to me when I was a child. So they, they sort of were once upon a time called Dart Brothers, actually. So Dart Brothers was the business which probably goes back to 1950, 1958, sometime around then. And they were farmers and they they worked in partnership together and dad then went to America in 1970 saw pick your own strawberries in California and thought well, what a great idea we've got an amazing farm that's well located on the on a, on the river x and it's got beautiful soils and it would be really good for growing vegetables and fruits and strawberries and things so he came back from America and in 1970 or 71 started a little business called Pick Fresh. So the idea was that the customers would come and they would pick their own, and it was called Pick Fresh. That's when Darts Farm, as it is today, really began, because that was the idea of selling direct to the, the consumer, or, or in those days, the consumer coming and picking their own vegetables and fruits and weighing them in the shop and then taking them home fresh. And uh, it's evolved. That was the seed. He planted the seeds. Obviously, I wasn't born until 1967. <laughs> so um, actually, this happened after I was born, then, I suppose, yeah, I was a kid. Mm. And then um, what, what happened really was my dad and uncle, they decided that they would focus on two different sides of the business. My uncle went into wholesale. So he started packing Swedes and things like that for supermarkets and vegetable fruit, fruit and veg shops. And started a wholesale business, and my dad focused on retail. So one went down the wholesale supply chain, and the other one went down the the farm shop road. Then, then in 1982, my dad, who was Ronald, actually very sadly died of cancer at age 49. So we were, you know, that that's probably one of my big things that's happened in my life was to lose a dad when mm. when you're sort of at school. 14, my younger brother Jim was 12, and mum, my mother was 49 as well. So that that sort of um, shaped things. However, actually, I think the seeds that dad planted were, uh, when you look back now, you realise that he planted the seeds and they were already growing and they were, weren't just the ideas, but his values were growing inside his children. So we grew up with very strong values and almost everything else has naturally fallen into place as a result of those values. Mm. And so how come, when, what, at what point did you decide to join the business? Was that quite quickly following 
his death or did it take you a bit of time after that to find your way back to Starts Farm? Uh, I knew I was coming home straight away because that's what I could feel was my sort of, you know, my passion and my calling. But my mum was amazing and mum, mum insisted that we finish our education. And actually she encouraged me to go to a fantastic agricultural college in Shropshire called Harper Adams. So Harper Adams is a fantastic agricultural university. It's one of the best in the country. And that's where I met a lot of amazing people because that's the other thing in my life, really. It's been the values that dad instilled in mum, but the people that we've been lucky enough to be surrounded by and have met. And I feel grateful for all the amazing people that have been on the journey. And Harper Adams produced a lot of amazing people that are still my best friends Mm. to this day. And George, you obviously have joined the company a bit more recently. Tell us about kind of what your role is and what the decision-making process was for you to, to join Darts Farm. Well, so I've um, I've grown up in and around the business. Um, obviously, it's uh, as you know from, from doing this podcast, family businesses, uh, people tend to get massively drawn in. And um, growing up, we'd spend weekends where kind of dad would be at work. We'd, or me and my sisters would, be kind of making dens in the stock rooms and probably doing things now that looking back probably really annoyed all the, <laughs> the staff but um we'd be yeah we literally grew up here um dinner times were all about how the day was how we can improve things so and then working in school holidays weekends um just in all the different departments around the business and um getting to know the team getting to know how we do things and then i went off to uni in um in reading and did food marketing and business economics and while I was at uni, worked for worked for one of our suppliers actually, um, a, a gin distillery, and got to go to loads of different farm shops and places like Fortnums and Selfridges, and kind of go in the back door and see how they all work, and just try and sell gin and talk to customers. And then while I was at uni, it kind of dawned on me the stuff that I was learning. It was all geared towards like big supermarkets, big conglomerates, um, just in time supply chains, and like commodity food, and that's not really how I kind of grew up seeing it done and not how I kind of understood it. And I kind of grown up in a, in a business where it's all about relationships and it's all about the people behind the food and, and the role that food kind of plays in community and, and producing healthy food in, in this like sustainable way. So I kind of always thought growing up that I'd head off and do, do something else. But actually I knew deep down that, that the business kind of draws you back. So yeah, I came straight back after, after my, when I graduated. And then was was hit by COVID, so that was essentially. I know it was a, a terrible thing, but it was really really good for for me and probably for the business as a whole because we we had to be really dynamic and innovative, and it kind of created opportunities for us to to grow and, and do different things and create new opportunities. And that was a really really exciting time to to be here and for a, a youngster to kind of come into a business at that time was was awesome. So when I came back, I. Um, it was obviously pre-COVID, so I came straight back and um, was working in the restaurant, working in the kitchens, uh, in the farm shop, kind of just, just doing what needed to be done, the kind of uh, dog's body stuff. And then this, yeah, COVID came along and, and we had to create an e-commerce site and we, we started yeah thinking about the ways we can, can change and, and improve the business. And then I, my roles kind of evolved naturally through then and we've we've done a couple of like building projects where we've got a new cafe a new restaurant now which we'll get onto later 
that I've been able to grow there without stepping on anyone's toes and, and kind of become part of the the team without any of our managers or current staff that have been there for a long, long time. I think being threatened by, by me coming back, which is really important. So, George, can we ask how old you are now? Because if you're straight out of university or in your early I'm 20s... I'm 24 now, 25 next week. And, and Michael, was that similar age to when you started in the business or did, would, was your journey much earlier than, than George's by nature of the, the need at the time? They're pretty much the same, actually. I, I was straight out of agricultural university. George was straight out of Reading. We sort of both took the conscious decision, interestingly to come back into the family business because you always have a lot of chats about whether you should go away and work somewhere else. You know, George did work the whole way through uni for Chase Distillery and actually he went off didn't he, and did a he did a harvest in Portugal of the making port. Nice. So treading the grapes, picking the grapes mm-hmm. in the winery. You went up to Scott Beef and worked in an abattoir in Scotland. Yeah. So we, we're, we're big fans of of getting as much experience of other people as you can. However, the the thing I believe in, rightly or wrongly, but I, I feel it's been right for our business, is to start at the bottom of the business and learn it from the bottom and be able to work in every department and ideally be able to be the best in every department or at least, you know, work with the team to a level that is they all respect you. And to show that work ethic, and and I think that's what we I had to, I was sort of had to do that because I had to come home. Really, mm-hmm. it felt a bit like survival. Yeah, I know it sounds weird, but it felt like okay, there's no one to look after me anymore apart from mum, and mum was doing mum couldn't do everything. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of that survival instinct of okay, I better look after myself now. I relate to that very much. I lost my father very suddenly at uh, almost thirteen years old, and. Uh, Oh. Mum went into a sort of state of shock. It was, you know, very, very sudden and unexpected. And uh, I think she went into a coping fog of just getting me up yeah. and out for school each day with two older sisters that sort of left home by then. And it, there is that survival instinct that kicks in of really it's I sort my own highway out or I or no one else will. <laughs> and you create your own pathway, don't you? And it you know, that inner that inner hunger and fire burns in your belly and uh, weirdly makes you quite ambitious, but uh, makes you makes you do the right thing. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly the feelings that, that we had. And it's all come good. As with many family businesses, values are often the biggest driver and are possibly the one thing you can't clearly separate from home and work life. They're arguably the USP for many of these firms too. You'll be getting a sense by now of the values instilled in Michael and later George. But how does that link to and have an impact on their commercials and their industry, especially as farming, food and drink has changed so significantly in the past 30, 40 years? That momentum is inspiring your And the son. values, I think that's really, yeah. that, that really came out when George, you were talking about the, the supermarkets and the, kind of the whole world around food and how different it is from your upbringing to kind of the big conglomerates and I think when your dad talked about the values that were were there and kind of paved his path it's almost like well it's just a replica in the next generation you know you had all this experience and exposure to um, the big food world but deep down it just didn't feel right because it didn't align with the values that are clearly coming through so strongly from your family and therefore the family business. 
Do you know, when um, it's interesting because you've started with both of us sort of the journey into the business and my, you know, effectively I came home 35 years ago. So when I was at Harp Barons, I didn't I remember listening, I sat in a lecture and I remember listening to this guy say to me, what you're going to see in your lifetime is the closure of lots of fruit and vegetable shops and butchers and bakeries on the high street. And you're going to see some really large supermarkets emerge and dominate. And he said, consumers will sort of change the way they shop. They'll go to great big out-of-town stores. He said, but the one thing consumers won't see is the change in the supply chain. They only see where they buy it. They don't see where it's produced. And he said, what you're going to see is thousands and thousands of small producers, bakeries, dairies, and you name it, vegetable growers, orchards, will disappear because... Ultimately, if you're, for example, Tesco, you only really want one or two massive suppliers nationally. They don't, if you think about it, it all goes to their big distribution centers. They love dealing with Carlsberg and Heinz and big firms where everything's industrialized and volume and lorries and pallets and barcodes. Dealing with little small artisan food producers is a real pain in the ass. <laughs> and it's what we do for a living. And I grew up just feeling that that was, it just seemed like common sense. It seemed like really, it, it wasn't rocket science to us to to have lambs and beef cattle grazing in the fields where we farm. And for that meat to end up going into a butchery, into our butchery, and people buying it where they can see it grazing, they can see it, see how it's looked after, see the welfare. It just seemed, it didn't seem that environmental 35 years ago, actually. 35 years ago, we weren't talking about climate change. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And now I'm fascinated because George has come home and it's 35 years later and all those little shops are gone, all those little supply chain producers have gone. And George sort of learned, it was interesting hearing him say how the, the universities were teaching them all about preparing people for big business. Yeah, yeah, getting you into a grad scheme for a huge conglomerate. Mm. But it's interesting, it kind of, it feels now like it's, it's going full circle. And even, even though the business climate and, and the world is quite challenging, if you look at any of our sort of areas, whether it's bread, cheese, meat, there's like a quiet revolution stirring where there's incredible producers and there's people trying to almost forge a, a new way and, and fight against that that sort of industrial manner. And I, it's, I don't know whether it's just because I'm in it coming at this time, but it's, it's the people I talk to say it's never been such an exciting time in food where yeah, you literally look at all areas and, and it's, it's people producing incredible food and creating different, like creating food communities and different supply chains and finding out new ways of getting food from the land and into people's homes and on plates. And, and people are really interested by it. our customers are a huge cross-section of society of just people that genuinely care about where their food comes from and the people that produce it. Attention is definitely turning that way, isn't it? To where, how far your food has come from and the whole kind of cooking with what's in season is becoming a much bigger thing because people are more aware of their environmental impact. And actually, it's so interesting that as a generation and as a family, you've seen the risk of like big supermarkets, what the, the risk they pose to businesses like yours. But you will probably very likely see it go 360. You know, it feels at the moment with climate change, like we won't have a choice at some point. 
to buy own but to not to buy from supermarkets it will become you have to find your local suppliers and you have to eat with what's in season climate change is this thing that's happening but it's happening slowly you can't see it you don't wake up and see a change from today from yesterday to tomorrow for me again good good old common sense told me a few years ago that we we're traveling the world is traveling in the wrong direction with globalization it just seemed like really weird that you know you buy everything as cheaply as possible from a country that can produce it somewhere around the world cheaper and bring it in halfway you know, from china so the first thing that happened was the pandemic and the west couldn't get any ppe because it's all made in china and everyone else wanted it and europeans grabbed it and wouldn't let it out of europe and you know all meant to be good neighbors and good friends and all the rest of it but you see what you see certain certain sorts of behavior actually that come out in a crisis where everyone starts to look after themselves and what what did it teach us it taught us that we've got everything manufactured offshore and, and actually i've always maintained that one day we will need our farmers <laughs> and then what should happen putin moves into ukraine and the world wakes up to the fact that russia and ukraine produce the vast majority of the world's wheat and sunflower oil and, and lots of other things as well. So we won't spend too long talking about that. But we, 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 our elite leaders have led us down a road that has been a disaster. And I think it's very important that what I call ordinary people start to question the wisdom of our elites because it's our elite policymakers who've been encouraging globalization, who've been encouraging all of these unsustainable. I mean, it was quite clear that you traveling, you know, shipping things all around the world. How, how was that ever a good idea? Because we never put a cost on to the environment of shipping things. It, it, the only cost that consumers ever picked up was the price tag. Mm. What had happened in the production process? So, even now, I mean, having things made offshore where they use coal, so it's okay to, to fire up a coal power station in India or China, but it's not okay to fire one up in, in England or Germany. Uh, we, we've just done the calculations that say that it, it's okay to import it as long as we don't use the coal. So there's some really crazy things that have been going on, and it's all been encouraged by our global elite leaders who've taken us down this road where... The good old farmer down the road in the pub having a chat with his neighbour would have probably told you it was all crazy. But nobody listens to the good old farmer down the road having a chat with his mate. But I think people are beginning to. People are beginning to start to question some of the crazy things that have been going on. We've been led by localism. We always thought we, we have our, we're very proud of our local electricians, our local plumbers. Our, well, basically, we buy a car and buy in the local garage. You get it serviced in the local garage. If the fridge goes wrong, you get a guy come out and service it. And these people, you know, are people that we have relationships with and we, they work for us for years. And we don't have to do it. There's no contract. It just feels good. It feels good. And actually, in your hour of need, they look after you. And that's the sort of world that I'm very, I feel very lucky to have grown up in. Uh, it's the sort of world that George seems to enjoy and thriving and for me now to to feel that there's 
like energy and passion. Like, you know, when, you know, I'm not saying I'm old because I'm only 55. I had my birthday yesterday. Oh, nice. happy but, birthday. Oh, it, it took all you. of uh, how many minutes in are we? to hear that it was his birthday yesterday yeah i would have been straight in there i would have been straight in there going actually it was my birthday yesterday yes he's just taking his badge off (laughs) yeah they had a sweepstake the kids had a sweepstake how long it would take me because yesterday i was telling everyone when you get to a certain age Oh, you yeah. You don't keep it quiet, do you? And then, yeah, so then I can imagine that everyone said, oh, Dad, you're telling everyone too much at your birthday. Pipe down about it. And then that's why you haven't brought it up today. But <laughs> when when Mum got her COVID jab, I said, you are honestly going to tell everyone tomorrow that you've had your COVID jab. And this is when we we're still working from home. And um, she, every literally every team's call that I could hear her go on, everyone say, oh, hi, how are you? She goes, yeah, good. Had my COVID jab yesterday. I'm feeling all right. <laughs> by, by the end of the day, I was like, yeah. oh, I am so bored. So then the next day she didn't mention COVID jab at all. (laughs) With George's return home, and now that he plays an ever-increasingly integral role in the family firm, change is in the air. For George, perhaps it felt like returning to where he was destined to be. And for Michael, his dad, an exciting time to have one of his children back in the fold, for a little while at least. On the relationship that you both have, you're learning to be boss and employee as well as father son how does that you know in terms of George you you coming into the business and I and I love the reference of coming home I think that's a really lovely endearing term of where the business is in your hearts is it's at the center of it's home for you how is the relationship evolving by working together so closely now I think um well nothing's really changed it's not like when I came home our, our relationship changed or the way that we kind of interact changed at all it's kind of just evolved and we're lucky really to work really really well together and um yeah i think we're yeah, just lucky that, that we get on and we, we've kind of got the, the same goals in mind and, and we're, we're wanting um the same thing and whether it's at home or or here we're we're constantly we've got a load of few sisters as well and, and as a family we're, we're i mean work is home home is work and, and that's what we love about it so coming home, it wasn't like I was suddenly starting a new job where I've got to build this relationship with my boss. So it's kind of like it's dad. And in one way, you can, it's, it's great because you can, if you don't agree, we can have a pretty honest chat. And then there are times, obviously, where <laughs> it's the biggest pain in the ass in the world and <laughs> you, um, it, it drives you mad. But luckily, I, I managed to, to move out kind of about, about a year ago. So I think that was probably good because we were coming home it was all day at work all night at work um, yeah. so it's been good for us to spend <laughs> at least a couple of hours in the evening apart <laughs> yeah we um really i'm i moved out about a year ago as well and we do say that has been a, a really good thing not that there was a problem before but you don't realize until you're out that how much of your life is consumed with your parents yeah, <laughs> if when you work with as them. parents you know whether you know it's, it's a good thing for your kids to fly the nest but empty nesting is a thing it's a thing. How did you feel, Michael? I mean, it's often the clucking mums that find it hard. Um, well, I, I, I'll be honest. I, I had a momentary, I, I, you know, when George said that, I think, um, uh, I, think I, need, I need to find someone to live and do that. I sort of think, I was thinking, well, you, you've, bloody hell, you've been away to school. You've been away doing your traveling around the world in your gap year. You've been away to Reading University. You've only just come home and been looking forward to this. <laughs> and, and actually now you're moving out. However, I knew it was the right thing. Exactly. And that makes it feel okay, doesn't it? 
Oh, it was the right thing because yeah. look, we spend all day together, and we're very, we are actually really close, and we, we we enjoy a drink, and we enjoy doing certain social things. So, what I would say is, he's a really strong, independent. You know, he he he's got a very strong mind, and and actually, that's really healthy. You wouldn't have that any other way, would you? No, no, yeah. that's what you need, and I, I think that's the one thing you know I'm proud of is. All of the four amazing children, they're all strong, independent thinkers, and they all have been encouraged to say what they think and not hold anything in and be very honest. Because normally, when you're honest, everyone actually is thinking the same thing anyway. How often are things a big surprise? They're not really. Uh, It's just really important to talk about them. And if you talk about them, you tend to find that there aren't problems, whereas if you don't, they can fester and and become a problem. So I think we're very lucky. I mean, again, back to the people in our lives who perhaps helped helped you understand some of these things. I always take them nuggets. I love picking people's brains and just stealing little ideas and thoughts and tips. And, and you know, often I think in life, oh, that's gone really well, but actually that old chap there or that lady gave me that good bit of advice. And um, if you can pass that on to your children... Mm-hmm. Then, then you're in a good place. I also think it's really interesting uh, that George, you said when you were starting, when you started officially at Darts, it wasn't like starting a new job with a scary boss you didn't know. That's something that we haven't actually really talked about on this podcast before. Is for a next gen family child or you know cousin or whatever relation to the current boss, there is that comfort, I suppose, of if everything goes wrong, or if you know I'm still learning. It's quite comforting, but it comes with additional pressures, obviously, you know, like making sure you feel respected by the team and all of that, you know, that that's additional thoughts that I think family business next gen people have to consider. But that is really true is at the end of the day. Can I just say, and I'd be really interested to see what George, I've heard what you've said. I have a hunch. I don't know this. I think he'll say the opposite. Yeah, I think it's almost as if you've got there's huge shoes there, and I, I don't need a massive personality. And um, yeah, there's kind of a pressure for me to come back, and, and you've got this kind of boss who's also your dad, and, and actually people have got certain expectations of you, and how are you going to turn out? Are you are you going to live up to, to what he was like? And then there's also the external pressures of I had a load of, of friends. Obviously, they went off to, to London or whatever, and then got jobs in the professional services, and I was kind of coming home to to work with daddy, and there's that sort of um, sticking to your guns and saying, yeah, that is what I want to do. And that's, yeah, something that it's going to be a, a real challenge. And, um, I'm, yeah, I want to come back and contribute to the family business and continue continue what they've started. And almost that, that legacy it was a decision of, yeah, you either go off and, and contribute to someone else's business that will one day probably not have impact on in the future or you actually you come back to, to the family farm where you been for generations and and try and build on what your family have done. I think your perspectives are really interesting. And I guess the difference being that George went off uni, work, travel, came back and made a concerted decision. And there would have been this anticipation from both Mm -hmm. those within the organisation of what George brings now and George himself of 
you know, well, this I was is just my a legacy, bit of a, this is me coming back in. I was a bit in. of a punt employee for everyone, wasn't I? I was just out of school. Helping out helping over the out. summer after sixth form. And then I did all right. So I, there was and you didn't leave. <laughs> no expectation of me. I think everyone thought, well, she's either going to fly or it'll be a distant memory of Layla's employee at this lean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think it, your different experiences. Yeah. It's, it's not like a kind of... I didn't formally come back on a certain day or anything. It was kind of just like you finish uni, the summer, get to work in the farm shop, and then it kind of just evolved from there. It wasn't like I came back into a certain okay. role or it was a big homecoming. It was just you're home for summer, crack on with it. And um, I don't look back. That's the hardest thing, I think, for a child to go into family business is um, there isn't necessarily a vacancy mm. at the right time. Uh, so George came back and did dog's body jobs. And has always been highly respected in the business, actually, as as one of the boss's children who does all the dog's body jobs. Yeah, he's the first to pick up the litter, first to sweep the floor, first to help out when someone's rung in sick. And it's amazing, although that, that work ethic, that you do that and it spreads around the business and everyone, you know, we've got 150 people who work for us, or with us, I'd say, and on site there's another 150, so the 300 people who work at Darts Farm. And for them to see youngsters who are humble, who do every job and smile and look you in the face, shake your hand, that goes a long way. Those things, it doesn't, they don't look at your CV and see how many A stars you got. They actually look in your eye and think, if you've got a twinkle and if you've got a smile and, and actually, are you arrogant or are you humble? And, you know, those, back to values, those are the things that, uh, in my experience, go a long way. Finding a voice as the next generation is something I feel some battle with more than others, and it's never linear. Some topics are within a comfort zone, others not so much. The pandemic created a space for George to not only realise his potential in the business, but perhaps also find out the true impact the family firm had on lives around them and the local community. You could say George was lucky because the pandemic came along. <laughs> the pandemic came along and we went into, um, you know, it felt like we were going into another war. Because the war was the pandemic and it was a bit like, you know, it's the weirdest thing in your entire life, really. You wake up suddenly and the government say, oh, non-essential retail is closed from tomorrow. And basically that meant a half a dance farm was suddenly closed overnight. So we've got an amazing business with amazing what we call co-businesses that have share our values and ethos. And that's from outdoor, the great outdoors, which is the Cotswold Outdoor and the RSPB. And then your home with Argo and Fiber. And then we've got our beautiful sort of, uh, you know, what you would call um, lifestyle, the energy hair salon and the treatment loft and everything. All of these businesses were deemed overnight to be non-essential. So they all closed. And we sent a letter to all our suppliers and said, um, Guys, hey, how are you doing? How's, how's, how's this pandemic treating you? And we sort of knew it, was, you know, it wasn't really great, but, but the responses we got were horrific. So we got emails from people we've worked with saying the cheese, you know, we'd sell amazing farmhouse cheeses. And we got emails and phone calls from, say, Sharpen, who make an amazing brie. And so it's a soft cheese. So soft cheese has a short shelf life. And it's a very premium. So their, their customer, their market was amazing restaurants, hotels and pubs and the, the top end of delis. Well, all of those were told to close. So, so all of a sudden they've got all this cheese that's being matured, that's got 
a certain time that it has to be eaten in. And they said they've got no market. And, you know, I'm going to pass on to George now because um, this is where, you know, he, he saw the emails coming back and then came up with a few good ideas. And, and uh, that, that suddenly, I think he was hungry, hungry for success, hungry for an opportunity. And, and in a crisis, saw an opportunity and just explain what you came up with. Yeah, well, we, um, yeah, obviously, as Dad said, uh, a load of cheese producers who make a, a product with a shelf life and um, who make soft cheese, blue cheese, it's only got a certain amount of months and you've made all your stuff and suddenly restaurants are closed. And to add on insult to injury, you've, you've still got to keep milking cows. You can't just switch the switch the farm off. Cows need to be milked twice a day or sheep, goats, whatever. And you've got, still got to make cheese. So you either pour milk down the drain or you make cheese without the knowledge that you're going to have a, a market when it comes to the time the cheese is ready. So we, we set up this initiative called, it was like 30 days to save British cheese. And we had a, a box on our online box. Uh, it featured um, four different cheesemakers like, every 10 days, each of which were at the point where they needed cheese moving. Um, and we sent it out on our email database, on social media in store. And the, the kind of response from our, our community was, was unbelievable. We shifted like more cheese in, in that five, six weeks than we would do at Christmas uh, in a time where like most people weren't shopping. And yeah, the, the, the outcry from everyone was, was incredible. And the impact that made to, to those businesses was, was huge. And at the same time, I think it was just after us, Jamie Oliver did the same thing. Um, <laughs> and he, yeah, so, um, I can't remember if we were first or who was first. We were first. We, yeah, we, so we, we copied us. <laughs> But he did the same thing and, and had a massive impact on the farmhouse cheese industry. And now it's kind of stronger than ever. And I think it would manage to get good cheese into, into people's mouths that, that they hadn't even experienced before. And, and they were thinking, you know, must have received the boxes and thought, wow, I didn't know cheese could be this good. And now they come back week on, week out to the counter. Um, they feel like they've got a relationship with the cheese producer. They, they've been told little stories about where it comes from. And, and yeah, that was a kind of catalyst for, the way we did things with loads of other other things. So we did the same thing with brewers, cider makers, and at a time where it was really challenging for them, we kind of managed to engage our kind of consumers. We had the consumers, they had the product. We managed to kind of bring the two together in that time of kind of desperation and make it a really, really positive time. One of the previous farmers we've had on the podcast was telling us about how cheese is actually, it has something in it that is actually addictive. So I am not surprised that people have tasted a brilliant cheese and are now coming back to get it because they may well have had, have developed through COVID in your cheese boxes a very low level addiction to some of the cheese. <laughs> so therefore, they are now repeat customers for life unless they go to um, Happy days. Cheese Anonymous. <laughs> Happy days. I mean, it's, it sounds like you're really, um, well, you've created a hub, haven't you? The evolution of the business. You've created a hub that, that brings partnerships together between the consumer and, uh, and supplier and provider at, at a really, really pivotal time. So that's quite a landmark, isn't it, for, for you guys as a team working together? Well, I think, yeah, we just were saying we're, we're passionate believers in local, but local and community. So community, if you just reflect on all the little shops that disappeared in the village and in the town, that people used to walk up or down the high street and bump into each other. And that, that was part of the community and all the little people would drop all the deliveries in every day or every other day. And that was part of the community. And um, farm shops are doing really well, actually, all over the UK. We don't see other farm shops as, 
competition, we see them as friends because they're doing the same job as we're doing and they're helping to keep the small producers going. And if you said to small producers, what do they need? They need vibrant sort of people to sell their product. So, and, and uh, you know, although every now and again a supermarket will cherry pick uh, a supplier because it looks good, you know, the truth of the matter is during that pandemic, all our suppliers who were in supermarkets rang up and said, they've all dropped us. And I said, what? They've dropped you now? They said, yes. I said, why? And they said, because their supply chain's gone into crisis. They they can only deal in in, in big lorries and like Arctic loads and pallets. We're too fiddly. So they didn't want Otter Brewery and they didn't want Sanford Orchards. They wanted Heineken and Carlsberg. Mm. All right. Now, it, when you when someone explains it to you, it's actually pretty simple. Yeah, yeah actually, the moment they, they explained it to me, I went, and, and unfortunately, this was across, this was across pies, ciders, beers, cheeses. It, it, it wasn't just one commodity. It was across the sector that the supermarkets went into a little bit of a panic. Everyone was when they rushing and buying toilet roll, if I remember right. But little small producers suddenly found not only were they not able to sell to a local pub and restaurant and hotel, but the supermarkets who did take some of their product just dumped them overnight. And, you know, I think this does need to be talked about and it does need to be understood by the public. Troubled times, like a pandemic, create an opportunity for lifelong memories to be made. And no more so when doing that with your family. As George finds his foot in the business, guided by his father, it's great to get a glimpse of the legacy the next generation is already creating. It sounds like through COVID and even before and since all of these things, you're making such brilliant memories through the business together. Do you have favorite memories, maybe just day-to-day things or are there stories that you'll continue to tell for generations of things that have happened since George has been part of the business? Oh, yeah, there's a couple we could go on. I don't know how long you've got, but I mean, this, the first one probably was right at the beginning of the pandemic before we had, we had a website, but we didn't sell anything on the website. So whilst the kind of marketing guys were, or the, the, the couple of girls in the office were trying to um, get that set up, we, we did this free delivery for the over 70s in the, in the community. And we, we were debating whether to do it 60s or 70s, and they decided on 70s, luckily. And essentially what they'd do is they would call up and we'd have me or my sisters or one of the guys in the farm shop on the phone. Um, they would place their order of what they wanted. And I mean, at this point, Jeff Bezos would be like squirming, uh, the inefficiency, but they'd they cool up. And then we would run around the shop picking up a bag of blanched almonds and two parsnips and some Earl Grey tea. And then we would, um, yeah, put it in our cars and drive it out to whether it was Budley or like one of the surrounding villages. And we ended up, it was, it was less of a food service and more of a sort of counselling. Um, oh, gosh. Like kind of I can imagine. Session because you'd, you'd, these poor old people, they weren't, yeah. they couldn't speak to anyone. They, they were isolated from their families and they were calling up and it would be the only conversation they have all day. And you'd say, oh, hi, Mrs. Murren. And she'd go, oh, you're the first boy I've spoken to today. And then they'd tell you all about the cat and... <laughs> all about how what they saw on Cory last night. Exactly, Have you seen yeah, this latest storyline? Do you agree with who's going to prison? And then yeah, we had yeah, and then just like kind of trolleys and trolleys of stuff, and we had it was really really archaic. Um, so that was our kind of um, our dive into. But you know, you know, back to community because what George is saying there is we, the reason we did this was because we've been you know having a successful business for many years. 
And suddenly you hit by a pandemic and, and there was genuine fear and people were genuinely frightened. And sort of I very quickly made a decision. These Some of these customers have shot with us for 20, 30 years. Now's the time for us mm-hmm. to give something back, back and look after them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think the pandemic would last for like a couple of years. <laughs> and, and I didn't think some of these customers would um, would, would uh, enjoy the personal service to such a degree that, you know, it was hard to wean them off, if ever. Mm-hmm. We try and keep it quiet, but we've actually, we've still got two yeah, still got a couple who have that sort of service. Oh. Even come in and, it was George Godson. The worst one, I mean, we had, um, I won't mention her name, but we'd been literally bending over backwards to get stuff to this lady. And then on Monday, one of the guys was on the phone and saying, um, oh, can, can we deliver on um, Tuesday morning? And she said, well, no, no, dear, I'm, I'm coming to Darts for my haircut on Tuesday morning, so you'll have to deliver it another time. So oh, that's no. a penny drop. That, <laughs> so <laughs> she was coming there the anyway, yeah. but yeah. she just still, yeah. oh, oh. Yeah. she feels like she's oh. got a whole personal assistant team, personal shopper, yeah. personal assistant. Mm. She's She's got her life sorted for you guys. <laughs> For a business that's over 50 years old, based in the unassuming but beautiful town of Topsham near Exeter, there's nothing stuffy or aged about this firm. Instead, it's full of creativity. With some new team members and insights from the third generation joining the company, Darts Farm are continuing to absolutely storm it. Oh, and then, yeah, we had um, a lovely girl who, who just turned up in the pandemic and wanted, um, you know, she applied for a job as a cheesemonger. The gut said it was right. And, you know, she, we, we judged her as a person, actually, not her CV. Her CV was amazing. But Louise as a person is, is really outstanding and her work ethic and everything is just amazing. So we invested and Louise helped uh, design. She was so excited because she'd worked for great chocolatiers. And she said, my dream is one day have my own little chocolatier. And we were helping her to realize in partnership with us to develop this business from scratch, blank sheet of paper. And then we were also very lucky in that a lovely lady who actually was head teacher to my twin daughters, Maddie and Josie. She walked through the shop at Christmas and um, she said, oh, what are you up to? And I said, well, we're doing a chocolatier and gelato uh, from local milk. You know, we, we want to make some amazing gelato ice cream. And she said, oh, I, I, I used to make ice cream. Um, I, I can help you. And, you know, so, so Becky joined us as well mm-hmm. on a sort of part-time basis. And she brought amazing skills with her. And actually, it's funny we're doing this podcast today because um, yesterday we got the results of Taste of the West, which is like the southwest of England regional food body. And we entered this year for the first time ever. We entered three of our gelatos and some chocolate mm-hmm. truffles and sourdough and sea salt chocolate and a red wine, a sparkling pebble bed rosé fizz and a sparkling white fizz and our honey from our beehives. We entered all those products which we've developed and I'm very proud to say we won gold, which is the highest thing you can win. You know, we won gold in every every category. Oh, wow. which, which, that's amazing. That's a yeah. nice birthday present then, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, and Louise, so Louise and Becky, who sort of set up Gelato and Chocolatier with the twins and George, that team who've, who've done the whole thing, for them to enter their first ever awards and win the highest award you can win, pretty, well, still a bit gobsmacked, really. Uh, I've got to say, though, not surprised 
I don't want that to sound arrogant, but the, the passion, the energy, they, you know, when you approach something new with the right expertise and we, the ingredients, the, the milk from the local farm, and everything from our food hall and farm, we're very creative with the gelatos and the products. The sourdough and sea salt chocolate. I mean, it is to die for. I can't imagine sourdough chocolate. That's, oh, that's really once unusual. Once you tasted it. We both love, we love chocolate. Yeah, we're a bit we'll chocolate. Yeah. We'll send you some. Oh, we'll send yes, you some. please. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> it sounds like so much has evolved since you joined the business, George. How do you feel that your relationship or kind of feelings towards the business have changed with that? Does it feel, if you were to look back at when you joined, does it feel like the same business or do you feel more ownership of it, more responsibility? Kind of how how's that contrast from when you were first out of uni to now? I think that the business is the same and the culture is the same. And we're really lucky to have, have a load of people here who've worked here for a long, long time. Um, and they, they embody what darts is, whether it's our kind of head of hospitality now who started as a, a veg boy when he was 15. Or, um, I mean, we recently we opened a restaurant, a new restaurant, the farm table last week, and we had a, a test tonight where we kind of trialed all the, the how it would work on, on staff. And we said we'd invite everyone who'd been with us for longer than 10 years. And it was it was really tricky because we actually filled the restaurant quite quickly. Oh, um, brilliant! So, so we I think the culture the culture hasn't necessarily changed. I think the industry becoming a bit more dynamic, and we we feed off the energy of a lot of our producers. And I think yeah, whether it's more responsibility, I certainly I think it's more just excitement at what we we can achieve and what what we I mean we spend evenings and days brainstorming there's so much opportunity and so much potential for for the business to go in so many different ways so it's generally it's like you wake up in the morning just excited and it's almost like you haven't got enough time to be able to do all the things you want to do and to be working like with with your dad with uncles and cousins and sisters uh, makes it completely different it, yeah kind of hits differently when when you're all working together on something um and we've got say a cousin on the farm and my uncle's on the farm and sisters who kind of um, on starting the journey that I started a couple of years ago now and it's yeah it's, it's, I mean, it's different to just working in a business where the goal is profit or the goal is just having good video figures and the emotional reward is much higher isn't it yeah yeah got to say though you know we're lucky we're driven by passion but we've been relatively successful at that approach the gut you know you talked just now about the gut instinct the gut instinct happily has actually led to profit and you do need profit to, to repay your investment. But I'm going to just make it clear here that, that it, this isn't just sort of all beautifully dreamy and lovely because there's no doubt about it. We are living in a world now where it is genuinely hard in business to survive. And we're looking at uh, some of our suppliers who deliver small batches and the, the cost of delivery, the, the van, the fuel um, and we're looking at how do we how do we help them because if we can help them we can help ourselves um, because they need to be strong and you know so the message I'm going to put out is we, we do work food and drink local food and drink is an amazing industry it's an amazing community but all these food producers are working really hard to stay in business a lot of people have them as you know they just really enjoy the produce and, and, and rightly so we want people to have amazing pleasure for all sorts of reasons, which we've touched on. But but actually, when you do enjoy that wonderful local marmalade or that cake or that, whatever that product is, please 
these I wish people realized they, they are actually helping the producer. They're helping the people who made it. And those people right now need as much help as they can get because they're small and their costs of production are high. They don't make fast profits. In fact, it's a way, for most of them, it's a way of life. And we're often working with, with these little businesses trying to, trying to help them keep them going because without them, we don't have a business either. I, I imagine a lot of them are family businesses as well or startup family businesses because we've met lots of distillers and yeah. husband and wife teams, young families. And so it's a very strong message there because it, it probably is serving a whole family business community and many, many generations of either previous legacy businesses or, or generations to come. And, and that's a really huge, hugely important part of our economy in this country. So it's uh, it's all part of a chain, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we do our best to kind of keep that together in championing them and, and creating a pedestal for them is one thing. But that we we have this kind of um, harvest supper each year where we we bring together loads of our producers. They're all invited. They all come and they bring whether it's their bread, whether it's um, their pork pie. They bring products to kind of contribute to the table. Um, and everyone gets together. Oh, how'd you get an invite for that? <laughs> I think we have to make some produce, which it probably isn't our forte. <laughs> and it's uh, we, we couldn't, we haven't been able to do it because of COVID in, in the last year or so. But we, we can't wait for to have it um, this year, late, later on this year, um, in, in a new restaurant. And I think that sort of thing, even though everyone there is going through serious struggles and everyone's under the same sort of pressures, when you when you're able to share those and you understand that we're all kind of in it together, but we're all kind of fighting for the same cause, it does, it does inspire you. And yeah, like you said, it is, it probably we sound like a really jolly, happy place, but it's, it's hard work and our team has been under a hell of a lot of pressure in the last two years and, and, and we're massively grateful to them because they, they put their heart and soul, blood, sweat and tears into the business, um, because they've got the same sort of emotional engagement they, to them as we do. Um, One big family, isn't it? Yeah. And I think actually that's a very good point. I think in family businesses, we can, because at the end of the day, we still love the business. We will, there is more of a driver behind it. The bottom line isn't the sole driver for why we go to work every day in a family business. It's so much more complex than that. It is easy to talk about work in a very positive light because you can day to day, no matter what's happened, no matter how tough it is, you can feel good about it because it is family businesses are feel good businesses no matter what's happening but it's then for and we've talked about it with other people is is recognizing that it is grueling and tough at the same time you can love it and you'll always say the business has been like a third child for you and it's very similar children I'm sure I don't obviously have any but I'm sure children are very hard things to raise and look after but you love them no matter what and that is the same with family business and sticking our necks out and going yes we love it but it's tough I think it's a really key thing for, for mm. people to recognize yeah so when we had our harvest supper we we um it's i must admit the idea came in a pub a lot of the best ideas that we have seem to come often from the pub but we were in a <laughs> pub in london we've been to a food exhibition so we're in london and we're meeting fellow food producers from our community who've driven all the way up from devon <laughs> so we're in a london pub and we were having a few beers and we were going you know, from the boys from Burt's Crisps and uh, oh, Barney the from Sanford Orchards and Patrick from Otter Brewery. And we're in this London pub chatting away, going and chunks, chunks of pies. 
they said, oh, guys, we love your company. And they said, oh, we love your company too. And we said, well, well, I don't know why we don't spend more time together. Why is it we're in London in a pub enjoying each other's company? And we worked out that it's because we order the stuff, the food, the repeat orders over the phone, and then someone delivers it in a van, and it comes into our shop and we sell it, and the, the same cycle <laughs> happens week after week. And actually, we're all busy. And we so suddenly realize you don't see some of these amazing people that you love and adore and you've worked with for years as often as you'd like. So we, we suddenly said, well, we should spend more time together. Uh, and we, we just actually I just suddenly came up with this harvest supper idea. So we, we kicked it off. And what we didn't realize was that everyone would flock to us, literally, not just people from down the road who was five minute drive, but we had people asking if they could come from, we had an olive oil. And so that's not local. We had an olive oil supplier from Italy who asked <laughs> if he could come down from London and, we said, well, we're flattered, but that would be great. And he, he wanted to be part of it. And when some of these small producers came, they talked and they explained that they live most of their life quite lonely, really. They pick the olives or whatever and they put bottle them and they're in their little production unit and they don't see too many people. And we, we suddenly realized that we had a whole network of producers who supply us who often are quite isolated on their farm in their little production unit. And for us to be able to bring them together and for them to share stories, some of them sort of just started out, they were new businesses, to, to meet other new businesses and, you know, compare journeys and work the challenges. So, you know, when you get benefits that you hadn't thought about, you hadn't anticipated, but it feels pretty good. So I think that's one of our things that we're very proud of. Well, we're proud of quite a few things, really. But... um that's definitely bringing people together. Yes, you're creating a very strong community feel that I think is a very now current relevant thing to do. And it's 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 also the right thing to do. And it's very on brand, isn't it? If we're going to talk sort of uh, business fact in it, it's a very measured approach, but also great fun. And, and businesses, our businesses should have an element of fun. And Looking at sort of how the, the next generation takes that forward, how do you feel now, Michael, about the future and what Darts Farm might look like in years to come and, and how your, how George and, and your daughters become integral to that focus? Is that conversations that you're having around the dinner table now? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's very exciting. The, the reason it's exciting is because I think they have the right values and they're very passionate about what they want to do. But, you know, I did bring up the sort of survival thing, you know, it's come up a few times in our chat, hasn't it? And, you know, the world is tough and it's going to get tougher. You know, I've got a few simple rules, which is the best lies to the top. You only get to the top if you, if you're the best. You've got to outwork everyone and outthink everyone. And the only way that businesses will thrive and survive is if they've got the right leadership, the right people driving them to the top. And actually, what you find then is the right people want to work with you. We've, we've got an amazing team at Darts. And as George said, you know, we filled our restaurant with people who've worked for us for more than a decade. We, if we'd said more than 25 years, we'd have had quite a handful as well. So 
or whatever we're doing, you know, this is, this is, people want to be part of what we're doing and we look after them and they look after us. And actually, we enjoy each other's company. Yeah, it feels good. It feels great. Um, they genuinely, everyone cares for each other, but they work hard. I mean, we are talking, yeah, it's serious graft. And if someone's ill, they, they step in for someone else and they look after each other. And we've got that culture, haven't we, across the business. You know, George has lost his son, but last week, Joe, my head of hospitality, came to me and went, do you realize you did 88 hours, <laughs> 88 hours clocked in? He still clocks in, you got a clock in it machine. <laughs> now that doesn't count the hours at home. I mean, I've spent quite a few yeah. hours at home with him where he was showing me the new menu, the new wine list. And the wine list, it won't say wine, the drinks list. It's wines, beers, ciders, whiskeys, gins. Obviously, we're, we're championing, you know, amazing produce that, you know, gin distilleries, you know, we've got some amazing ones down in the Southwest and Dartmoor whiskey, salt and gin. Yeah, we pretty much, we've got the best and, um, we're championing them and also small producers from around the world. So, yeah, we, if we bring things in from abroad that has, they have to have the same values and ethos as what we have. So the, the wine list is looking pretty good. And we've taken this view, which is a little unusual, that normally you go to a restaurant and they basically put a fixed margin on, on the cost of the bottle that they buy. The problem with that is if you, if you, if you sort of put a fixed margin on something that's cheap, you multiply it by a three or whatever they do, you, you know, seven times three is 21 quid. And most, re- most bottles of wine in a restaurant you know, sell between 21 and 25 quid. That if, if you Google it and like just average price of a bottle of wine in a restaurant it is between 21 and 25 quid. By the time you've paid for the bottle, the label, the transport, the tax, right. you think about what, what wine is left in that. So we've come up with quite a novel idea having talked to a few people in the industry who said, you know, why don't you come on Darts Farm? Be brave. Why don't you do it differently? So what we've decided to do is we've decided just to put a fixed, not not a margin, but just a fixed profit amount per bottle. So I'd rather you bought a really amazing bottle of local wine that may cost, say, may cost us 15 quid or 20 quid, whatever. And if we put 10 quid on it and, and we've made our 10 quid. So we, we've taken a different approach. If you come to us and say, okay, say so you're going to go for Premier Cru Chablis. We sell that in our in our drink cellar at that. And it, it, we've been to the vineyard in, in Chablis. We know the producer. We know his children. And we bring it in on a pallet. And, and it, every year the wines are slightly different because they're artisan and they're, they're, they're literally, they're, they are from the vineyard and they're amazing. So we just want to put a fixed price on that so you can choose if you want to spend 30 quid on a bottle of wine you can drink amazing wine because we've made say 10 pounds a bottle out of whether it costs whatever it costs and that approach enables us to share things that we think are amazing with people without them having to pay crazy prices um, so we're doing that and it yeah. seems to be going down. It seems to be working. It's going really well. I think people can't believe it. Yeah, just incentivizes people to drink better wine and, and experience things that they might have been locked out of before by standard conventional kind of margins mm-hmm. and structures. Yeah, the better the wine, the better the value it is. And, and people 
there probably shouldn't be um, advertising drinking more that people tend to uh, drink more and, and yeah, I'll buy two of them. But surely, surely it's better to drink more of a higher quality wine than more of a lower quality wine. So the message is drink good, drink well and pay the right price for the, the supply chain. Benefits well, it's about transparency as well. It's, it's sort of explaining to the consumer and the... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, that uh, there, there is a process and, and everything has a cost. And I think that's a, a really valuable way to go. We, we were lucky enough to visit this amazing little vineyard in, um, in Champagne. And actually, it was a Champagne producer. And, you know, you meet the people. It was, this, is re- this was really small. This was like five acres, two hectares. But it was right in the middle of a village called Oger, O-G-E-R, which is right in the middle of Champagne, Grand Cru area. And... The father and son were explaining that it was started by the grandfather after World War One, and he used to grow his grapes and sell them to a local winemaker. But we had the recession of the 1930s, and he couldn't get enough money from selling his grapes to someone else to make wine. So he decided to make, to, to make his own wine, and then his son came into the business, and it was father and son, and he rang everyone he fought in the war with, who had a pub or a restaurant or a hotel in France. And he rung them up and said, look, I'm now making amazing champagne. You know, and they all decided to take his champagne. So we met, you know, when you meet someone who it's now jumped to the next generation of father and son. So you had the young son and his dad and they bottle, I mean, they do the whole thing. It's like you taste the wines, the champagnes, and then you say, oh, I'll buy a few cases or whatever. And they actually stick the labels on (laughs) They're gluing the labels to the bottles while you're there waiting and putting them in a box. Oh, that's really charming to think of that, isn't it? And it's Grand Cru. It's, it, and, and when they explained to me that, you know, Verve Co and Moe, Chandon and Krug and all these amazing brands that you've all heard of, there aren't enough Grand Cru grapes to, for those large, large, large brands to have exclusively. The Grand mm. Cru grapes in the Champagne area are quite... You know, there, there just aren't that many. So, so the reason you don't really hear about it very much is the very, very large firms, big firms, don't want to shout about it because they, they themselves don't have it. But what they do is they blend, blend lots of wines, champagnes together to create a taste that's their taste. And then you buy the Moe taste and everyone debates whether they prefer the Pico or Moe champagne. <laughs> And, you know, they put a lot of marketing money into the industry, which is great because the industry needs that. Because what is it you open when you have a birthday or, you know, a a family wedding or a christening? What do we do? We all open a bottle of champagne. And this little small producer was explaining to me that the big boys are great because they make a lot of noise. They spend a lot of money on marketing and they create an opportunity for a little vineyard like his that doesn't have that sort of resource. And he wrote us a beautiful email to say, thank you, Darts Farm. I'm so proud to supply you in England. You buying direct off me uh, has enabled me to invest in biodiversity and planting like flowers and um, certain Amazing. sorts of things. In the, in the, he's improved. So this is grandfather started it. It's now him and his dad. And they're improving the vineyard. They are making it more diverse with more biodiversity. And he, he was talking about how the new wine has a particularly amazing flavor as a result of things he's done and it all becomes very real George doesn't it when 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 you sort of and like I say I, we're a farm shop in Devon that champions Devon and the southwest 
But we're also very proud to champion things from Wales and Scotland and Ireland and abroad, whether it's little small olive plantations or what we would describe as one of the world's finest champagne houses that happens mm. to be a father and son. And they've only got five acres, so it's very small. Maybe we need to interview them. Yes, we would love to interview them. Yes, we should do that. Yeah, he's quite good at English, actually. Is he? That is a key thing, I suppose, because our French is very poor. I'm not sure about (laughs) his dad, though. Um, (laughs) Um, So now we come to our usual three quickfire questions, which we admit are not really that quickfire in response, but hey... It creates a nice dialogue anyway. So here is how George and Michael responded to our three quickfire questions. So to each of you individually, what is your earliest memory of the family business? Earliest memory is with my dad in his Land Rover, driving down to one of the fields where the men were picking potatoes by hand and they were filling out bags. And I remember getting to this field where they were filling up the potatoes and there were a few chaps down there who, who were putting stones. They were filling the backs up with stones. <laughs> and he picked, you could tell they were a bit dodgy. He picked up some of the bags and tip, tipped all the potatoes out and they were literally full of stones. And I remember, you know, I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight, nine, or something like that. And I remember dad sort of giving them a bit of a rollicking. And the other memory I had was we, we grew these amazing strawberries. And of course, you know, dad would sit in this office that looked uh, from across the field to where the strawberries were being picked. And he'd have his binoculars out because we had this sign up that said, you know, eat one, but don't be greedy. And he never <laughs> minded. He never minded people eating. You, part of growing things is that people go in the field and they do eat. They do enjoy. What you hope, though, is that they bring back a punnet or two or three that are full of strawberries and they actually buy some of you. Occasionally, you've got some really cheeky people who would come. They, they would come back with red strawberry marks all over their cheeks <laughs> and mouth. And they'd say to you cheekily, oh, we couldn't find any strawberries down there. And, and there'd be none of their planets. And that would really, so that would really wind up bad. And again, it's back to honesty. And I think when I was a child, actually, it's interesting because you've asked that question. It probably comes back to values and honesty. You know, he would expect people to eat some, but buy some. So, Treat, treat everyone fairly, mm. and those are the sort of values that, that I grew up with. And what about you, George? What was your first memory? Oh, it's been, yeah, it's tricky to think of first memory, but like uh, there's some, obviously, some, some really standout memories from, from when I was younger. Just things like I grew up with a lot of building work being done and just walking around with a little, one of the builders got me a, like a little hard hat. Uh, which we actually still got them, haven't we? Yeah. Um, we had like drawers written on it in a, in a Sharpie, um, and just walking around with dad and sitting on the diggers and then doing the same sort of thing out on the farm, sitting in a tractor when you're really young. And then kind of growing up, we, dad took us when we were all quite young around, um, like trade shows and, and things like the extra food festival, Devon County show and, and having that first sort of interaction with a lot of, a lot of producers and a lot of, um, Kind of being walked up and down the, the rows at these food festivals and, and watching dad have a beer with, with people that now I'm kind of working with on a whole different, in a whole different way. And they've kind of seen me grow up from a, a small young boy to, to now working with them directly. So yeah, it's like, I mean, you've probably got better memories than me, man. 
Well, it's it's, 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 a, it's meant to be a hard question, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it yes, puts you on the spot. First, <laughs> memory, yeah. And then again, like Sundays, just studying Sundays here. Um, we'd come for a roast every single Sunday with, with Dad, and he'd be in the, the restaurant kind of just overseeing stuff. And, um, yeah, me and the sisters would just run off and cause carnage um, <laughs> around the shop literally week in, week out. But actually, when when we did that, it was really interesting because I was listening to the children and they would, they, I, it was that early day when I real early days when I realized they spotted everything. So they would spot who were our best staff. They said, Oh, dad, that's your best waitress. That's your best. Um, and I suddenly looked and thought, gosh, I don't have to teach it. These guys, these guys are spotting from a very, very early age. And they were learning off our managers. We had an amazing restaurant manager called Swella. Who, she was, she was French, and she worked for us for probably 20 years? 19 years. She's amazing. She's still a very good friend. But she's opened her own little business, actually, and her daughter works with her. So it's another little. She's opened a lovely little cafe restaurant deli in Dawlish, called La Sydney. And Suella was, she, she, real French passion energy. You know, when she wasn't happy, everybody knew it. <laughs> but when she was happy, everyone knew it. And there was real tempo and, you know, a lot of our team now, uh, worked for us back then. So it's almost these things grow and it, it, we're very lucky to have this sort of, um, it, it, it's not stop start, it's evolution and it's, it's great people who've been with us. Um, we had another lady in the pandemic, Margaret. She was 83 and she was still managing our deli wow. at the start of the pandemic. And, you know, we, the hardest thing we ever had to do was say, Margaret, the government have said we have to put you on furlough. You're 83. You're technically over 70. And the government have described that as vulnerable. But she broke down in tears and said, but I don't want to go on furlough. This is my life. And we actually, for a second or two, were thinking, oh, gosh, you know, what do we do? And I just said, well, Margaret, I think I have, I think I have a, a legal obligation to make sure you're safe. She goes, well, who, well, who's going to know I'm here? Yeah, who's going to know I'm here? Oh, I can hide oh. around the back. Oh, that's so, <laughs> so sweet. Oh, yeah. Oh. So we, we, she is still working for us. That she had, she stepped down as manager of the deli, and she still comes in and does some laundry and and puts the bread out. And, oh, and, you're uh, her family. And again, so, yeah. Well, we're her family, and do you know the the power of that for the other, for the team who work with us to see an 83 year old. We've been here for quarter, more than quarter as well, for over 30 years, is pretty powerful. Anyway, so sorry, what was your, what was your next question? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what, the next question is, what would you do differently next time if you had your time again? And obviously, George, it's still early days, but are there any sort of U-turns that you would have done on the journey? No, no. I mean, I've got a friend who criticises me. It's always good to have friends who criticise you. I've got actually. You need a critical friend. I've got friend. quite a lot. <laughs> I've got more than I've got more than one. No, I don't know whether it's right or wrong, but he'd say we've gone too slowly. So he, he he's 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 expanded much quicker. We've perhaps gone a little more slowly, but then I would maintain that that I don't think it's a race. I don't think life is a race to see if you can achieve the biggest amount in the shortest period of time. I think we've done it in a way that feels good and it feels solid and, and I look backwards and I'm really proud of it and I'm proud of the people that we have. 
that manager, Margaret, who was 83, she's given us years of loyalty, hard work, honesty, integrity, values that, that were just unbelievable. Um, she didn't like cheese and she ran the deli. Mm-hmm. Right? And she didn't like cheese. So some would say, how could you have someone running the deli who didn't like cheese? I thought she'd retire at 75. <laughs> I actually thought she'd retire <laughs> at 70. She's still with us at 83. And, and a lot of people said, well, well, can't you retire her? And I said, I can't retire her. So we put her needs more yeah. than the deli. Actually, that our business has, that department has, uh, putting it, it has actually improved dramatically since the team that are now running it love cheese. So George, George actually came in and worked for an amazing company in London called Neil's Yard. Neil's Yard Dairy is one of the best cheese companies, producers, butchers, families in the country. And George went and did work placement with them. Chap with Jason Hines is the MD of Neil's Yard. And it very kindly said, said to George, come up, come up to Neil's Yard and learn everything we do. And George went up, came back to darts and our team were ready to really go on that next journey of mm. becoming cheese ambassadors, as opposed to selling cheese. Yeah. There's, a very, there's a really big difference between selling cheese and actually going to the farmers where they make it, tasting it, and believing in it, and meeting, meeting the... We've just been off, what have you been, Colston Bassett? Yeah, Nottingham, Colston Bassett, to, um, yeah, to, to meet the, the cheesemaker there, who's, who's only the fourth cheesemaker in a 100 years to make one of the world's most iconic cheeses. And yeah, that was it's amazing for our team. You get a whole different perspective on things and a whole different relationship when they come back to the counter now and they can taste out some of that cheese and explain that they've seen where it's made. They know the kind of the personalities behind it and, um, and to be able to share that message with customers. Um, and it's us engaging with, with the food community at both ends, both consumer and producer. Mm. Another quick fire question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, we're the same. We do this. Is there anything you would do differently next time, George, or is uh, it too early? I've already had a time yet, so I mean, <laughs> ask me in twenty years' time. I don't know. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll revisit. Yeah, we'll I think we've revisit. we've got like a we've got a bit of a, like a risk taking culture where you're encouraged to try things, and um, we we don't want yeah we want to, people to experiment and to. to Try and innovate and try new things. And every time I've got something wrong or we've got something wrong, we've learned something from it that's allowed us to do it better or differently next time. So I think, I think actually making mistakes and not getting things right is, is more important, I think, sometimes than thinking and nailing everything. Definitely. Good answer. So lots of little, uh, lots of little mistakes are really good if you learn from them. And I think they enable you to get the big, so if you get the big things right, because the big things are actually made up from lots and lots of little things. And like George said, we, we have a culture of, of being really brave and innovative and challenging with little things. But then we talk about it and we work out what's right. And we ask other people then. So we get other yeah, people to... Definitely think we know it all. Yeah. So we might be a bit slow. Some, some might say they're a bit slow. But that's okay. They're slow and steady wins the race, is what the old age saying is. So I think um, measured is always better. And George's sisters, the twins... They're, they're, they're in the business. They just, um, they finished university during the pandemic and they said, Dad, we've been robbed. We've been robbed mm-hmm. of our best years mm-hmm. at uni. Mm-hmm. And anyway, they said, so we're going off to Mexico, Guatemala. Guatemala. And they, um, you know, 
obviously they make chocolate here at Darts, they managed to persuade us all that well, they were going to visit <laughs> they were going to visit the <laughs> chocolate growers. <laughs> the cacao, Brilliant. cacao cacao growers in um, Guatemala, which they did. So they went out and they met um amazing cacao plantation and um cacao bean growers. And again, for them to see that and um the comment the reason I say this is they said, Dad, everywhere out there, it was signs in the streets. And they, they went to somewhere where there was a, a lobster festival. We're talking about fishing boats. This is These are areas where it's really simple. The way of life is really primitive. And there were fishing boats coming in. And they were like, like you know, like oil drums cut in half with like charcoal. Literally, the streets were just cooking lobsters. And they were mm-hmm. uh, really cheap, like frighteningly cheap for just walking down the street and having half a lobster. Mm-hmm. And the girls came back and said, Dad, the signs everywhere say, life is slow, life is good. So, so I think that's something else we've... The, the pandemic taught us, actually, stop rushing around, stop traveling all over the world, start enjoying things that are on the doorstep. Just walks, listening to the birds, the leaves on the trees. Some of the best things are are very close to where you live. Well, we're very like I say that, we live in Devon, and Devon is very beautiful. And that leads us nicely into our final question, which is what would your top tip be for any business leader having worked with your family? I think show really good leadership and lead by example. So lead by example and show the, the standards and everything that you expect. But to nurture and uh, uh, for me, the most exciting thing isn't what I'm doing. It's the most exciting thing is watching what the youngsters are doing. And, you know, I, I actually will judge my success on, on how, how well they all get on as opposed to what maybe I've done. That, that I think, is the true judge of mm. your success. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and George, your, your views so far? Probably just don't be afraid to dive in. There seems to be as people, uh, youngsters can often try and go and go away from the family business and try and, like, go west sort of thing and work in London or, or do something different. I don't know why I'd say to anyone who, who's got a family business that they've grown up in, don't be afraid just to dive in because, because the rewards are they're completely different. But yeah, I think that, that would be the main thing. Just go for it. Yeah, yeah I'd a, agree. That's I'd a really agree. nice way to end. That is a lovely way to end. A really lovely end. conversation. And um, thank you for your time today. It's been uh, really enlightening and some really strong messages as well that we can relay out to the world about supporting local yeah and what that really means to uh suppliers and and people's lives and livelihoods Mm. in in small communities so uh i hope that does a little bit of good now we're some way down the line with it runs in the family it's so funny how serendipity has its place So often we find little connections and hooks that bring our guests together. They either already know each other or have a shared experience or know others in the network that they mutually connect with. It's really fascinating. So lo and behold, here we are chatting with Darts Farm in the morning and by the afternoon, without anyone knowing, I'm there at Darts Farm charging up my new EV. How exciting. So I managed to meet up with George 
and he shows me around their fantastic new extension, which is insanely beautiful. And I cannot recommend it enough for anyone on the road, anyone with an EV that needs to charge it on the way down into the West Country, go to Darts Farm. And just seeing what these guys have created having just spoken to them only the same day was a really incredible experience and thank you George for hanging around a little bit later to meet me. A huge thanks to Michael and George for joining us on this episode of It Runs in the Family. Liz has covered most of what I was going to say but I think I really like George's analogy and description of coming home to join the family business and uh, working towards something that will benefit you long term instead of working for another company where you might not see that. It's something that next generation can sometimes forget and reflecting back as to why we're here is really important and George encapsulated that feeling really well. Thank you for listening to another episode of It Runs the Family. We will see you in a couple of weeks' time for another heritage British family business, which I'm sure all of you will have had a connection with at some point or another. See you soon.